With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Sandra Garner? I'll start with the background of Sandra Garner. I'll move to the timeline of the homicide, and then I'll offer my analysis. Starting with the background, John and Sandra Garner would meet when working at the same packaging company in Paris, Texas. They were both managers there. There were 13 years between them. John was younger. Sandra had been married twice before and had two adult children. John and Sandra would get married in Las Vegas two years after meeting. In 2014, Sandra was diagnosed with MS. The symptoms were challenging for her. She became depressed and considered taking her own life. John cared for her when she was ill. Not everybody was a fan of John, however. He was blunt, abrasive, unrefined, and consumed excessive amounts of alcohol. He took antidepressants, but it's not clear if he actually was officially diagnosed with a mental disorder. In his role as a manager, he fired a lot of people. Sandra would say he loved firing people. In 2016, John and Sandra moved to Maypearl, Texas to be close to family. They lived right across the street from John's parents. This takes us to January 1, 2018. John and Sandra had just finished celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary. They went to bed between 9 and 10 p.m. In the early morning hours of January 2, 2018, Sandra Garner called the police and told them an intruder shot her husband. It took the police between 15 and 30 minutes to arrive. They found John Garner mortally wounded. Sandra was interviewed at the police station. Here's what happened according to her. A man wearing a mask and carrying a flashlight entered the bedroom of John and Sandra Garner as they slept and fired two shots. This, of course, woke Sandra up. She started screaming. The man said, shut up. She responded by saying, please don't kill me. Then the killer said, what I came here to do is done. I didn't come here to shoot you. The killer must have been in a talkative mood because he went on to explain how he worked for John at one time and he worked hard but John fired him. He lost his house, wife, and kids. He asked Sandra about money John kept in the house, saying that he needed money, and he earned that money. She led the killer to a closet containing a safe where the money was stored and gave him $18,000 in cash. She got a little bit of a look at him here because a light came on when the closet opened, but she only saw his eyes because, again, he was wearing a mask. Before departing, the killer told her to sit down and count to 100. He said if he heard sirens, he would come back and kill her. Sandra proceeded to count to 100 as quickly as she could, then called 911. 
The chief of police led the investigation, but he had no experience with homicide cases. Here's what the police found. Sandra had a little bit of gunshot residue on her left arm, consistent with being next to someone who was shot, as she claims was the case. Four days before the murder, one of her electronic devices was used to search the internet for ways to kill someone in their sleep. This device did not require a password. John was killed with a 38 caliber firearm. John owned 49 pistols and 12 rifles. He stashed them at various places throughout the house. One that he had given to Sandra was missing, a 38 caliber revolver. The police searched Sandra's house, including her garage. They found nothing. Sandra's adult son, Wesley, from a prior marriage, did a lot of talking to the police. He told them that he felt as though his mother had committed the homicide. He went on to say that the 38 caliber revolver might have been in her Ford Mustang under the seat. The next day, the police tried to search the Mustang again, but they found it was now locked. It had not been during their previous search. Sandra initially refused to give the police her keys, but then when they made it clear they would make entry into the vehicle one way or the other, she handed them the keys. Under the seat, they found her 38 caliber revolver inside a plastic bag. Later, it was determined that that revolver was the murder weapon. Sandra was interviewed again. She denied putting the gun in the car. She was charged with murder on January 10, 2018. Her trial started in September of 2019. On October 10, 2019, she would be found not guilty. She was released from jail. Jeopardy is now attached. She can never be retried for that homicide. Now moving to my analysis. The first question here is, even though she was found not guilty by the law, was she actually not guilty? Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that she was responsible for John Garner's death, starting with the evidence that makes her look guilty. We know for a fact that she was in the room when John was shot to death. Her revolver was the murder weapon, and it was found locked in her vehicle. Her device was used to search the internet for how to kill somebody. The idea that she had this extended conversation with the world's most loquacious killer does not seem realistic. This killer just happens to give her a detailed explanation of his motive, even connecting it to a known flaw in John's personality, his love of firing people. This reminded me of a James Bond movie where the villain explains everything to James Bond. This just seems a little too convenient. I'm surprised the killer didn't go into how tough his childhood was. Like he was going to commit murder and then say to Sandra, I really have a lot to talk about. Do you mind if I pull up a chair and spend some time here? Next item related to the killer. He remembered to bring a mask and a flashlight, but forgot to bring a gun. He amazingly found Sandra's gun, not any of the guns that were stashed around the house that belonged to John, used the gun, and then returned it days later, locking it in Sandra's car. I guess he just wanted to make sure no one got hurt. The killer disappeared without a trace. The police talked to everyone who John fired. None of those people was a suspect. It also doesn't make sense for the killer to commit a first-degree murder and then leave a witness. He was already facing life in prison with no possibility of parole. How did it make sense for someone who was willing to kill to avoid killing a witness? If one were to argue that Wesley was the actual murderer, which is what Sandra says she now believes, how did she not recognize his voice? Now moving to the evidence that makes it look as though Sandra is not guilty, that she is innocent. The quantity of gunshot residue on Sandra was not consistent 
with being the shooter. It may have been that there was more residue on her that was not detected because of the poor investigation. For example, the police never bagged her hands, but that's an unknown. All we know is that the police did not find sufficient residue. Sandra did not have a motive. If anything, it would appear as though she greatly benefited from John remaining alive. He supported her in a number of ways, including financially. There was a good alternative suspect in this case, Sandra's son, Wesley. He was never really investigated thoroughly. The prosecutors determined that he was not the killer for a few different reasons. He did not have the stomach to be a killer. If he had committed the homicide, he would have vomited. They said that he was not smart enough to commit the murder. I guess he didn't pass the homicide intelligence test, the HIT. The motto for that assessment is, we put the hit in hitman. The prosecutors also said that you could tell by talking to him that he was not a killer. That's the old you can tell by talking to him trick. I guess these prosecutors are also psychics in that they also have no idea what they're talking about. Next item, Wesley was at Sandra's residence the night the inculpatory internet search was made. Sandra and John routinely went to bed between 9 and 10 p.m. The searches were made between 11 p.m. and midnight. In addition, for the search on how to kill people, other searches were made like fentanyl, espresso machine, and cappuccino recipes. Sounds like somebody was planning something bad. I could picture the jury deliberating and one of the jurors saying, I don't know much about that killing people in your sleep stuff or that fentanyl search, but that cappuccino search looks guilty as sin. The last item as far as evidence that makes Sandra Garner look innocent, Wesley did not have an alibi, although the police initially thought that he did. Netflix and phone records indicated he was active during the time of the crime, but the times were not recorded in Central Standard Time. After recalculating, the police realized that Wesley had no alibi at all. This was just one of the many mistakes the police made. Two others would be that they did not preserve the crime scene and the chief lost cell phone photos he had taken right after the murder. With all this in mind, was Sandra Garner guilty? I think in this case there is clearly reasonable doubt. The jury made the right call. As far as actual guilt, here are my thoughts. If one were to rule out the idea that a stranger killed John, then we are left with only Sandra and Wesley as suspects. I think most people would agree that one of the two of them was probably guilty. The problem, of course, is how do we know which one? There are problems that come up when considering the potential guilt of either person. If Sandra was guilty, why would she put the gun under the seat of her own car? She had plenty of time to take the gun somewhere else after the police searched her car and did not find it. For example, she could have thrown it in a lake or buried it. Now, it could be that because the police searched the car and did not find it, she thought they would not search it again. But either way, it seems unusual not to just completely get rid of the murder weapon. If Wesley was guilty, how could Sandra not have recognized his voice? I mentioned this before. Upon recognizing his voice, she could have simply implicated him. That would have been much cleaner than saying that some unknown intruder committed the homicide. When considering everything, I believe there's probably around an 80% chance that Sandra actually did it and just foolishly put the gun in her car. I came up with that percentage based on the murder weapon being her pistol and her unlikely narrative about this extended and very information-laden conversation with the killer. I think there's about a 15% chance that Wesley did it, 
There are three reasons I came up with this number. It looks suspicious that he knew exactly where the gun was. It is a little strange that he was so fast to point the finger at his mother. And the how to kill somebody in your sleep search was a little too perfect. So four days before the murder, but at no other time, there's this one search on a device that he has access to when he was at the house. The remaining 5% would go to something like a half-baked conspiracy between Sandra and Wesley. Like Wesley did it at Sandra's behest, and when the police started pursuing her as a suspect, Wesley implicated her in such an over-the-top and obvious way that he made himself a suspect. He may have also done this because he was scared. I think Wesley's interference was the main reason that the jury found Sandra not guilty. He really confused everything for the prosecution. As the prosecutors contend, Wesley may have not been smart, but for Sandra, his lack of intelligence came in handy. Wesley's incompetence joined the incompetence of the police to create reasonable doubt. One last item I wanted to cover is this uncanny similarity between the Sandra Garner case and the Sandra Melgar case. I covered the Sandra Melgar case in a prior video. Just a quick review of some of the similarities between these two cases. Both cases were in Texas. They did not occur terribly far apart, 2018 versus 2012. Both defendants were named Sandra. Both victims had a three-letter name beginning with the letter J, John and Jim. Both couples had just celebrated an anniversary, 18th and 32nd. There was no motive in either case. Both defendants blamed an unknown intruder who no one else saw. Both defendants were not injured, although Sandra Melgar would claim to be injured. Sandra Garner recalled a conversation with the killer. Many found the story unconvincing. She was found not guilty. Sandra Melgar said she didn't remember anything. Many people found that story unconvincing. She was found guilty. So I just thought that was interesting. It's rare to see that many parallels between cases that took place so close together. How about the lessons learned from the Sandra Garner case? Even though the behavior of Garner's son helped her in court, the mistakes made by the police are really what hurt this case. We may never know the truth because they simply didn't preserve the evidence. This case came down to self-awareness, or I should say, a lack of self-awareness. Law enforcement officers, just like people from many other professions, rarely assess their own skill levels correctly. Few people want to admit when they're in over their head. In this case, clearly the police were not prepared for a homicide investigation. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.